Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. The poet T.S. Eliot once wrote of J. Alfred Prufrock that he had measured out his life in coffee spoons. I can plot the course of my life through the various assignments I undertook around the world for three or four years at a time, going back to the early 1980s at one or other of Ireland's diplomatic missions. Last year, as I prepared to attend my daughter Tara's 40th birthday, I felt a catch in my throat. The occasion brought back memories of my own 40th birthday and of my deceased parents who shared that milestone with me at a surprise party at my family home in Waterford. Somehow, the realisation that my daughter had racked up her two score of years produced a welling up of emotion that I struggled to conceal. Her birthday celebration, which was a joyous affair in keeping with Tara's generous character, also rekindled memories of my first assignment in India, where Tara was born, and of the Indian woman who chose her name for us. Vijaya Lakshmi Pandit was in her early 80s when I met her in New Delhi towards the end of 1982. I was friendly with her granddaughter and was invited to Sunday lunch at Mrs. Pandit's elegant home. In her earlier years, she had been a leading Indian diplomat with assignments as ambassador in Moscow, London and the United Nations in New York, where she became the first woman to chair the United Nations General Assembly. She was born Vijaya Lakshmi Nehru and was the sister of India's first Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. As we sat down to lunch, Mrs. Pandit confirmed that I was Irish before launching into a word-perfect recitation of Yeats's Lake Isle of Inishfree. I will arise and go now and go to Inishfree and a small cabin bill there of clay and wattles made. As soon as she had spoken the poem's concluding line, I hear it in the deep heart's core. She moved on to When you're old and grey and full of sleep and nodding by the fire, take down this book and slowly read and dream of the soft look your eyes had once and all their shadows deep. The members of her family gathered round the lunch table all joined in, demonstrating that Irish literature was a shared interest for the members of the most politically influential family in 20th century India. Mrs. Pandit explained to me that she had learned Yeats's poetry while interned with her brother by the British authorities during India's independence struggle. Yeats's nationalism had endeared him to the Nehru family and they had never forgotten his verse. There was I, a young Irishman imbued with an enthusiasm for Yeats, now thousands of miles from home and discovering a deep local attachment to the literature of our small European island. Mrs. Pandit explained to me that for her generation of Indians born at the turn of the 19th century, Ireland's struggle for independence had struck a deep chord. She had been stirred by Terence McSweeney's death on hunger strike in 1920 and had written an essay on him that had won a national competition. Years later, as ambassador to Ireland, she had taken special pleasure in attending performances at the Abbey Theatre. During the years I spent in India, I came across many instances of that affinity with Ireland, encountering repeated evidence of how our national story resonated with many Indians at a time when the British Raj was still within living memory. 
I remember that day in 1982 as if it were yesterday. My wife Greta was about to give birth to our first child and Mrs. Pandit suggested what she thought would be an ideal name for an Irish girl born in India, Tara, which is the Hindi word for star. Thus, weeks later, our newborn star was instantly named. To mark that Indian birth, I acquired a print of Yeats's A Cradle Song. I sigh that kiss you, for I must own that I shall miss you when you have grown. That print now hangs in my granddaughter's room, and I imagine that Yeats's angels are stooping above her head. Whenever I think back, as I often do, to those halcyon days of long ago in New Delhi, I can hear the soft, clear voice of Vijaya Lakshmi Pandit sounding in my ears. But one man loved the pilgrim soul in you and loved the sorrows of your changing face. And bending down beside the glowing bars, whisper a little sadly how love fled and paced upon the mountains overhead and hid his face amid a crowd of stars. And I also think of the pilgrim souls in my own family circle, past and present. We should all have pilgrim souls on life's journey on our Irish tourists. opportunity to take part in a local market presented itself recently. My sisters had taken a table as they had blackberry jam, marmalade, apple jelly, fudge, bracks and all sorts of other things to sell. I hadn't anything but they said I could be in charge of selling as I'm good at that. I understand it's about telling the customers what you have on offer. But then I remembered that I did have a couple of half-finished paintings and the temptation to put my work on display took hold. As the day of the market drew near, I battled with my fear of making a mess. I've always painted or sketched. I bring crayons with me on holidays and I sit on a beach rubbing the crayon colours into the paper with my fingers, smudging it and drawing away to my heart's content. Thalo green is my favourite colour. It is the colour of the sea when the water is deep and the sunlight is at a certain angle. It's the turquoise colour of the tide when it is lapping up against the quay wall in sunshine. It's the deep filtered shade that lets sailors know There's a depth of water beneath them with rocks or mud way down under the surface. It can be a sign that there's a lot of seaweed washing back and forth. Or it can mean that the sun is shining over a clear body of shallow water with nothing but sand underneath. According to the London paint makers Windsor and Newton, Thallow Green was introduced to the market in 1938. It is a synthetic green pigment 
and it comes from a group of thalocyanine dyes. Until then, painters usually used viridian green, which was developed in Paris in 1838. And before that, they only had the dangerous emerald green, a deadly toxic colour made with arsenic. Martha Bergman, a painter and an expert on art materials, says that Francis Bacon found inspiration in thalo green and that he uses it to increase the sense of doubt and discomfort in his paintings. From the mid-50s on, she says, you can see thalo green darting along the edges of Bacon's broad strokes and it allows, she says, an intensely chilly colour sink into the background. Usually thalo green is available in two different shades. One is the brilliant transparent green pigment with a blue undertone, while the other is equally brilliant but with a yellow undertone. The two shades can lend depth and texture to a painting. But as for my own painting project, I was worried I might ruin a canvas and I had not painted for a long while. I was daunted by the idea of starting again. Although my instinct was to make a picture and to lash on the thalo green, the idea of setting up my easel and opening all the tubes of paint left me nervous, and so I'd suppress the urge and walk away. As we live by the sea, I used to often find myself painting boats, not to mention the shore, the quay wall, the strand and the slip, but boats without question are always the most difficult, whether I use oils or acrylics. The graceful lines are often deceptively subtle, not to mention the heft of them in the water. The lines can slip away easily on you. The level line of the water is a given and a steady constant on a canvas. But an incoming tide can also rearrange these moored boats. Still, my desire to hang a picture or two for public view won out and two weeks before the market I started painting. A small picture from a photograph I had of a beach in Corsica. A figure in the foreground who is my sister has her back to the camera. She is sitting at the water's edge looking out at a heat shimmering Mediterranean. I finished it and I was pleased. Then I started another one. Two nights before the market, I was still at the kitchen table, layering and lathering on the paint, and I was never so happy. I bought cheap frames, and in the end, I had seven paintings ready for the stall. None of them sold, but one man commented on a seascape I had done, saying that he loved the colour of the incoming tide. I lived over the sea near that pier for a while, he said, and you've got the colour spot on. I told him it was thalo green and he nodded speculatively. Buying a painting can take a while, I know, so he may well come back to me.
When my brother abandoned his teaching career after three weeks and returned to college to study medicine, one of the conditions laid down was that he would work the summers in England and earn money towards his fees and digs. So, each June through the 60s, he would take the boat to Hollyhead, the train to London, and become part of the staff at Wall's Ice Cream Factory. His brief returns home for a week or so at the end of the summer holiday always brought a taste of the exotic. New music, tall tales, books not available in this country at the time. One of those books was Lolita, Vladimir Nabokov's contentious novel which had first been published in Paris in 1955 but was still unavailable in Ireland. The volume my brother brought back was a hardback, but the dust jacket had either disappeared or more likely been removed before its arrival in our house. By the time my brother returned to college, the piece of torn newspaper that had served as a bookmark had settled between the leaves of the last pages, and the book had been deposited beneath his bed with a handful of paperbacks. And there it remained until my mother exhumed it in the course of hoovering. I wasn't there when the discovery was made, but I became aware of the outcome that afternoon, when my mother, with much tut-tutting and several comments about our not being brought up to read filth like that, handed me the book and told me to put it on the bonfire I was about to light. I had no idea who Nabokov was and his first name was beyond my pronunciation skills at the time. Nor did I have a clue who the young girl of the title was. In fact, I had no notion that she was a young girl. All I knew was that I now possessed a hardback book that my mother wanted out of the house. I did as I'd been told and lit the bonfire of old boxes, rubbish and newspapers, and watched the pages curl and fold into crimson and yellow flame, staying at my job until that week's rubbish had been reduced to a pile of ash in the bottom corner of the garden. What I didn't burn was Lolita. It wasn't that I had the slightest interest in reading the book. If the author's name was anything to go by, the book wouldn't be of any interest, I reckoned. But what was of interest was something I'd seen in some black-and-white film at the Castle Cinema, where a spy had hidden a gun in the hollowed centre of a book, only for his enemies to search unsuccessfully for the missing weapon. I didn't have a gun, but I was a member of a gang, and we did have a hideout, and in that hideout were several items of great importance, namely a key, though we didn't know to what, a penknife that had rusted shut but could one day be forced open, a foreign coin that we believed to be rare and thus worth a small fortune, and half a cigar, which we had tried to smoke but found even more unpalatable than woodbine cigarettes. Now I had in my possession the means to keep these treasures together in one place, safe from prying eyes. And so on afternoons when my mother was out of the house, 
I borrowed a scissors from the bottom drawer and spent hours slowly cutting the centres from the pages of Lolita. Nabokov's literary endeavours falling like autumn leaves to the floor of the shed, to be gathered later and burned lest the evidence be found. As I resolutely worked my way, line by line and page by page, I kept one ear out for the sound of my mother returning from the shops. At the squeak of the opening gate, the book would be hidden behind the lawnmower, the pages folded into my pocket, and the scissors returned to the bottom drawer. It took two weeks for the precious receptacle to be fashioned, but at last I was able to present the book to my companions in our hideout, and we ceremoniously deposited the coin, the penknife, the cigar, and the key in the hollowed pages and closed the book. That winter, the snows fell heavily. The branches that covered our sanctuary bent. The jute sacks which sheltered it collapsed beneath the fallen weight. And our refuge was temporarily lost under feet of slush and frost. And when the thaw set in in late February, all that remained of our treasure were the spine of Mr Nabokov's book and the even rustier penknife. The key, the cigar and the coin that would have made us rich had disappeared into the stream behind the hideout. Gone like Mr Nabokov and gone like our vanishing childhoods. What would you say I am? The nice nurse in the green scrubs was kneeling down in front of the stroke victim. They had wheeled him into the A&E while I was there, expectorating. I would say you are a very nice young girl, he told her, after a good while. I don't think I've ever written the word expectorate before, and I doubt I'll do it again, but spitting sputum into a bucket through the small hours in a hospital ED was at the time something of a habit. This visit was circa number nine or ten and I was almost proud of reaching double digits. I felt like a professional veteran amongst conscript recruits. And who, said the nurse to the stroke victim, is the President of Ireland? I'm not an Egypt, he said. We have the President we deserve. My vigils in Vincent's had to do with a kink in the throat where food loved to lodge. It could be a pellet of bread, a battered flake of haddock, a bead of pork shoulder. In the operating theatre it was always called a bolus. But the operating theatre didn't open until 8 a.m. Meantime, I never choked, but I couldn't swallow. And you'd be amazed at how much spit and saliva human beings make as they sit to spew with a dabbing roll of two-ply jumbo. It says something about us. Depending on point of view, 
the bucket's either half full or half empty, when the trolley whisks you to the surgical registrar as the clock hands lurch painstakingly into place. That night, the shadow at the cubicle curtain was a new nurse, an Indian. I assumed she was a Catholic from Kerala, because so many are, and, of course, I'd long since boned up on elderly hippies in batik blouses on the beaches of Goa, and Thomas, the doubting apostle, who found his way there overland, back when. I am, in point of fact, a doubting Thomist myself. But no, she was a Hindu and a very hospitable one who went on to bewail the sectarian sternness of her co-religionists in what I was careful not to call the subcontinent. I had learned that lesson on visit number two. Instead, I told her of a Mumbai, high-caste Hindu who was based in Dublin and liked to attend the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament in a chapel on the quays. She deliberated as I drooled. Nurses are great about bodily fluids. How old is your soul? I asked her. We had stopped chatting and begun talking. It was two o'clock in the morning. Two o'clock in the morning is not simple, but it is straightforward. Old as the ages, she said. My body is in its twenties, but my soul is ancient. My body is somewhere between seventy-five and a hundred thousand years old, I told her. You would think it should have evolved by now, so that the gullet and the windpipe were not so close together. It is a bit like putting the toilet bowl beside the aga. That is why I am a doubting Thomas, but my soul is in its forties only. It is still under warranty. It is midlife, middle class, middle brow, Dublin. What is an aga? she asked me. But she was called away by the bleeper, and I squatted there over the bucket with a little silver stalactite of foam on my chin. If I'd been born in New Delhi and not in Donnybrook, I might have been taught to imagine that my body was brand new, a pristine plaything, and that my soul, for want of a word, was a pensioner on pilgrimage. Would that have made the difference that makes things different? A doctor in the next cubicle darkened the plastic curtain in between us. I had to listen hard to hear him. We'll have to stop the liquids as well, he said, to somebody. I'm sorry. Somebody said nothing. Not even the bedsheets rustled. I'm truly sorry, the doctor said. I could see his shoes beneath the hem of the cubicle curtain. They were a pair of Clark's Howard Edge in about my size. Then the doctor left, and I forgot about the person who couldn't eat solids or drink liquids any more until the tea lady jollied along and parted his plastic canopy. Kappa, she said to the poor somebody in a kindly, carry-on, cheering way. I can't eat, a man's voice said then. Now, I can't drink. Fair enough, said the tea lady, and swerved away with a tableware tremor of her scratch-free, spill-proof cups. 
I was her next port of call, so I wiped my stalactite with a scroll of the man-sized tissue they call kitchen paper and waited. But she passed by. The nurse must have mentioned my bolus. No, it's not, it's not fair, said the voice of the man with throat cancer. It's not fair at all. world I grew up in, the concept of decluttering was unknown. In our house, we had less than a dozen of anything, including cutlery and eggs. I knew exactly how many pairs of socks I had, and a new dress was a treasure I would try on often, but wear only for best. My mother knitted our woolens, and on the hearth was a red and black rag rug made with strips torn from an old coat. It fell to my father to mend our shoes, and a couple of times a year he'd bring out the iron last and assemble his paraphernalia of nails and rubber soles and heels, plus little kidney-shaped metal segs that extended the life of a heel even longer. What a pity none of us could tap dance. I never felt deprived, because why would you if you had enough? The motto... Make do and mend was one we lived by quite happily. So when did repairing things become quaint? No one in today's throwaway society darns a sock or sews on an elbow patch. In my childhood, there was a general expectation that furniture and kitchen appliances should last a lifetime. Deep down, I still feel that way and I love my 35-year-old vacuum cleaner. Although I accept that if my washing machine breaks down, it may cost more to repair it than to buy a new one. Built-in obsolescence has seen to that. Of course, not everything is disposable. We all still hope to repair major items. Cars, farm machinery and electronic goods all come to mind. For a time back there, it looked as if big business would make it impossible for anything to be repaired other than by the original manufacturer. However, in both the USA and in Europe, right-to-repair legislators have brought in measures so that your local mechanic and electronics repair shop get a fair crack of the whip. As we become increasingly aware of the damage our non-stop consumption is causing, there's a recognition that we need to recycle, reuse and repair. In 2009, the first repair café appeared in Amsterdam and since then, around 1,500 repair cafés 
have sprung up worldwide. These are places where you can bring in your broken toaster and walk out with it under your arm, all fixed. Some places are stocked with tools and people show you how to use them, while in others, volunteers donate their skills on your behalf. Instead of twiddling your thumbs while you're waiting, it is only decent to return the favour if you can. Perhaps you're handy with a sewing machine or have a knack with bicycles. I'm not immune to the siren call of shopping, but I find the fix of buying new doesn't last long compared with the satisfaction of getting, say, your knife sharpened instead of throwing it away. The Japanese have a particular contribution to make to the whole repair idea. When a ceramic vessel is cracked, or even if a piece is missing, they repair it with liquid gold or liquid silver, or else a special urushi resin lacquer into which they've mixed powdered gold or silver or platinum. So when a crack in a tea bowl is repaired, the repair is not hidden, but made apparent and becomes a thing of beauty in itself. A golden zigzag runs down the bowl as if it's been touched by celestial lightning. This art is an ancient one dating back to the late 15th century. The story goes that Ashikaga Yoshimasa cracked his favourite tea bowl and sent it to China to be repaired. Alas, when it came back, the pieces were held together by big metal staples, which made it look as if a giant locust had clamped itself onto the vessel. Japanese craftsmen were stimulated to look for a more aesthetic way to repair, and they devised kintsugi, a word that translates as golden joinery. To the Japanese mind, repairing an object marks an event in its history and celebrates it, making it more precious. Kintsugi is similar in attitude to wabi-sabi, the Japanese philosophy of embracing the flawed. If we look at repairing in this light, we see it for the creative thing it is. My dad, in his messy old shed, stocked with hammers and rusty tins of odd washers and screws, could take a wobbly chair and make it as good as new, better than new, because it now embodied his loving skill. He was doing more for the planet than we knew. This is a poem that I wrote in tribute to W.B. Yeats's The Song of Wandering Angus. It borrows the last word in every line from his poem. It's titled Wander Song. Some day, love, 
Go into the wood and cast your sights out far ahead. Look closely for a flash of wand, squint, conjuring of silver thread, elbow emerged of feathered wing, ribs stitched together inside out, a goddess rising from the stream, skin kissed by darting silver trout. Race now across the valley floor, Footsparks that set a heart aflame. Lie with her on the mud-drunk floor and call this creature by her name. Sweet care that swanned into a girl, lake drops still heavy in her hair. Dripping over the fields she ran, caroling through the sun-spun air. Some day, love, go out wandering through this folklore, these spirit lands, where whispered tell of tales long gone, and fading light colours your hands. Pause there among the foxtail grass, here, fix your wings, they've come undone, and lift your shoulders to the moon, and turn your face full to the sun. On this morning's programme of new and recent archive scripts, we heard Two Scores, Two Score of Years, A Memory of India by Daniel Mulhall. Thalo Green was by Catherine Foley. Gone, Like Mr Nabokov by John McKenna. A&E Vigil by Aidan Matthews. Mending Our Ways was by Margaret Hickey. And Wandersong a poem by Needy Zach, Aria Ike. The music was Yeats' The Pity of Love, set to music by Raymond Driver and sung by Ashley Davis, accompanied by Cormac Dabara and Colin Farrell. Green, Oh How I Love You Green, was by Maria Doyle Kennedy. Cadenza by Ludovica Inaudi. Someone to Watch Over Me by George and Ira Gershwin played on tenor saxophone by Coleman Hawkins and Handyman by James Taylor. The poem Wandersong by Needy Zach, Aria Ipe was originally commissioned by Galway 2020 and Poetry Ireland. Aidan Matthews' latest collection of poetry, Pure Filth, is published by the Lilliput Press. And Catherine Foley's poetry collection, Auron Srodvile, or Village Song, which features her own paintings, is published by Arlen House. Pilgrim Soul, W.B. Yeats and the Ireland of His Time by Daniel Mulhall is published by New Island Books. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio app or to the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.